text this evening is as it was last Wednesday evening. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, and the words of the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Last time we considered what this commandment requires of us positively. What are the duties that it lays upon us? And we were considering the outline of Shorter Catechism, question and answer 77. And rooting the command, as we've tried to do with all of the commands, in God himself, who is the God of truth, the God that we are to imitate in all aspects of his holiness. We then considered three main things. The first was the promotion of our own good name, then the promotion of our neighbor's good name, and then in general, the promotion of truth, particularly in witness bearing. Tonight we move on to consider what is forbidden in the ninth commandment. And we're following again the outline of the Catechism, question and answer 78, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. And that's a very short answer, but I do commend to you the larger catechism's answer in 145 of the larger catechism. And there you will find a list that is way beyond what we could conceivably consider this, this evening. But you ought to sit down and consider those things carefully and prayerfully before the Lord. To offer another summary, we could say the ninth commandment forbids all lying. And Thomas Vinson defines lying as lying to make mischief, lying to make gain, Lying to induce wonder, lying to make sport, or to make fun of someone. Truth-telling, as we considered last time, is an imitation of the God of truth. But we also said that lying is an imitation of the devil, who has been a liar from the beginning and is the father of lies. And so when he comes, he finds something in us. Because lies, as we sang in Psalm 58, men are born into this world, and from their wicked hearts comes lying. Well, if you're not a Christian here this evening, you are a liar. You are a liar. If you are a Christian, you are a struggling liar because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh you have indwelling sin and you have a new nature which inclines to righteousness and the bible is very conscious of this of the ongoing struggle and even contradiction that we find in our own hearts and so paul challenges the ephesians in chapter 4 and he comes back to it when he writes to the church in colossae saying, lie not one to another. Imagine God having to say that to the church. Lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Like all sin unforgiven, lying terminates in hell. When all of our words will be weighed at the judgment seat of Christ. Every idle word, every untruthful and deceitful word, everything that we've spoken in public and in private, everything that we've said to people's face and everything that we've said behind their back. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, we are warned, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We have two main points this evening 
to consider. The first is false testimony. False testimony. And we take up here where we left off last week in the courtroom when we were considering that phrase, especially in witness bearing. And of course, that's evident from the way the Lord phrases the command. Thou shalt not bear false witness. He is condemning all lies so that this commandment summarizes all moral teaching in the Bible connected to lying. But there is an emphasis here about dishonesty in the judicial process. Dishonesty, which is sin and which is also crime to bring false testimony in this way. Now, not all sin is crime. Interestingly, not all crime is sin in the crazy culture that we live in. But here's something that is both a sin and a crime. Fisher points out in his exposition of the Shorter Catechism that everyone involved in the judicial process may be guilty of breaching this commandment. The prosecutor may lie and distort the truth in his prosecution. The defendant may do so in his defense. The witnesses may lie in their accusation and evidence, and the judge may also violate this commandment in his judgment. Now, ordinarily, this false witness bearing is done against others. But it can also be done against self, and that is also iniquitous. What do I mean? Well, the defendant, as you might expect, may be tempted to lie to get off with the crime that he's been charged with so that, he doesn't con be, that, so that he's not condemned. But there are other defendants, and due to pressure placed upon them from outside, you have to take the rap for this, even though you didn't do it. Or something will happen to your family. Or something will happen to you. Now the man's in a quandary. He's under oath. Swearing to tell the whole truth before God. And he can even violate this commandment by falsely condemning himself. The force of all this is still brought out before us, thankfully, in a court of law where we take an oath to bind ourselves to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm not sure if they continue to use the words, so help me God. But to lie under oath is to be guilty of the crime of perjury and to lie when taking the name of God upon our lips in that oath makes the lie even more scandalous and serious. In the Old Testament, God appointed very stringent rules governing the judicial process, in particular, witness testimony. And I want to work through these. The first is there had to be two witnesses. There had to be two witnesses. Turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, and look there at verse 15. And you could also consider chapter 17, verse 6. But for now, Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Do you see here in the process that God does not leave a man's condemnation to the testimony of one witness, even if that witness were true? Why? Because you have a situation where it is one man's word against another. And so God ordered things because such a judgment is very open to be unsafe. Now, the person may have been guilty of the thing, but in this process, we have a, an imperfection due to our lack of knowledge and our not knowing everything. And we have to reckon with that in the world. We do not always get justice. 
but we leave it to the Lord and the judge of all the earth will do right. So there had to be two witnesses. The second thing here is they had to be true witnesses. They had to be true witnesses. Because of sin, the judicial process is always open to having people framed, fitting someone up for a crime that they didn't do. Another person or persons bearing false witness against another. In the end, we cannot perfectly defend against this. However, the Lord appointed a number of things in the Old Testament that would decrease the likelihood of false testimony in court. The first is witnesses in a capital case had to cast the first stone. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6 and 7. Witnesses in a capital case had to cast the first stone. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death. And afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. The second thing in Old Testament law is that false witnesses in a capital case were liable to the same punishment if they were found to be liars. So if you lied against a man in court in a capital case, and if that man was found guilty, he would lose his life. If you were found to lie against him, you would suffer the death penalty. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 18 and verse 19. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. Now this is very helpful. Because if you were tempted to bear false witness... Even if you didn't have a conscience that worked properly, the basic concern for yourself would make you think twice, wouldn't it? My life will be required for his if I'm found out in my lie. Why? Because I'm employing effectively the judicial system to murder him. Or if you knew that upon your testimony, you would be the first person to pick up that stone and throw it in the execution of the person that you knew was innocent. That's a particularly seared conscience that would do that kind of thing. Even if man never discovers the falsehood of a lying testimony, God sees it and he takes a particular vengeance against it. Consider Jezebel in the history of the kings and she bore false witness against Naboth, didn't she? And she was never tried in a court. She didn't have accusers. She didn't have anything to answer. But the Lord executed that woman and destroyed her life violently in time. And suppose she were even to live to the end of her days, she would meet this God who sees and knows all things in eternity. So all of this should make you very careful when you bring an accusation against another. Take a civil case or a criminal case before you would bear witness, you should sit down and say, am I sure I saw what I saw? Am I sure I heard the thing that I claim to, hurt, to, to have heard? Do I know that it's true? You cannot go on a hunch. 
You have to tell only the truth. And if the truth is, I don't know, even though you think this person is guilty, if you do not know and are not able to witness to the truth of something, you need to be really careful. The same applies in a church court. It's a very serious thing to bring a false accusation against another member of the church. And that escalates in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, when it comes to those who are in authority in the church. And so 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, Paul warns about the process of bringing any accusation or indeed refusing any accusation when it comes to an elder. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation but before two or three witnesses. You see there's a safeguard there so that one individual can't go around and destroy the testimony and the work and the labor of an elder or minister of the gospel. And we would do well to hear that today because anybody can say anything and the consequences of it are severe. But the Lord has given us a just order. The sin of bearing false witness, we learn very early, don't we, in childhood, even in the discipline of the home. You children can be so quick, so quick to accuse your siblings. So you run into your parents and you say, he did this, she did this. And maybe he or she did. But oftentimes it's more, I think he did this. I think she did this. And you run into your parents demanding justice and yet you've got no evidence for your claim. You've got a hunch. And you actually want your parents to be unjust. We had this in our home all the time and it used to really frustrate our children. They used to come in and say, he did this. Where's your evidence? I, I just knew. And the child's getting annoyed and say, well, sorry. We just have to cast this onto the Lord because what you've brought to me, I can't make any judgment on. And you have to learn the principle that we've outlined here. Suppose you actually saw him do it or her do it and you come to your mom and your dad and you say, he did it, I, see, I saw him do it. And then the other sibling denies it. Well, one of you is lying. But there's a danger that you think that your parents are God and they are able to ascertain perfectly who that person is who's lying. These principles are at work in the home. Sometimes you don't get justice. But the main point is you ought not to ever bear false witness or demand that something be acted upon without due evidence. So we have false testimony. Secondly, we have false tongues. Because the ninth commandment follows us out of the courtroom into the whole of life. And we want to consider four main areas that this applies to the use of our tongue. And as I said, larger catechism 145 will give you many more than four. But the first thing, quite simply, is that the ninth commandment condemns lying. And we could add to that, it condemns all lying. Because God does not color code lies the way we do. As if there were black lies, which were serious, and then there were little white lies, which were quite acceptable, almost humorous. Now, at the same time, it's not correct to say that God doesn't color code 
lies altogether. But they're all just various hues of black lie. Various hues of black lies. There are some that are more serious than others, like in the court of law, under oath, more serious than others. But they are all abominable to God. Because the Lord says, no lie is of the truth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. A, a word of caution, a caveat, is that there are some forms of speech that are not strictly true, but they are not lies also. What do I mean? Well, we all have figures of speech, don't we? In our culture, we have metaphors, we use ironies, we speak uh, in terms of hyperboles. And some people think, well, that's lying, but it's not lying. It's a form of speech used to make a point that is understood. That's the key. It is understood in the context in which we are speaking. And indeed, you find the Bible uses this kind of language in many places. You could go to the book of Joshua and you will read there that the cities of Canaan were walled up to heaven. Were they really? Of course not. So the statement as it stands doesn't appear to be accurate, but everybody understands that it's a, a phrase to describe how high the walls were that were guarding these cities. So there, there's language like that, 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 that's not a violation of the ninth commandment. But every time you present something to be true when you know it is not true, every time you twist the truth to deliberately deceive, and here's one that we all need to be very careful with, every time we massage the truth and use it in a manipulative way. We break the ninth commandment. All of our malicious lies that we tell perhaps to harm another person are sinful. And then all of our polite lies that we tell because we think that's what the person likes to hear. Oh, you're just such a lovely singer. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking that person doesn't have much of a voice at all. That's a lie. It's a lie. We'll say more about that later, particularly in southern, um, southern culture. Great danger when it comes to these kind of things. But the question is raised, is it ever right to lie? What about in war? Is it okay to lie in war? And the big one that's brought up every time we address this is, what about hiding the Jews? And you know that there are many people who argue it is right to lie in those situations. And they appeal to the midwives and what they did in Egypt. And they appeared to be somewhat economical with the truth to preserve the children. And again, we have the example of Rahab who hid the spies in the city of Jericho. This is a big question, and there are different opinions on it, even in the history of Reformed thought. J.I. Packer would be an example on one side where he says, this is not false witness against our neighbor, but for our neighbor. Well, that's not true, because there's two neighbors involved. There's the one you're bearing false witness to or against, and there's, there's, there's the one that you're bearing false witness for. It is not right, but justified by the greater good. So if it's not right, what is it? It's wrong. Okay, well, is it not sinful? The conscience may be wounded and it needs cleansing. It's not right, but it's the lesser of two evils. That's basically his logic. Now, there are better arguments, I would say. People who go into Scripture and distinguish between false witness and lying and so on and so forth, there are better arguments. The Catholic Church takes it further. 
They actually teach lying is permitted. They teach that oaths can be dispensed with if it is done to promote the Catholic cause. The end justifies the means. Chief among this, we think of the Jesuit principle. They don't call it lying. They define it as equivocation. But when we go to Scripture, the Bible counts all of this to be lying. And the Bible does not warrant us choosing the path of the lesser evil. In fact, we are warned against that very thing by Paul. He protests against it in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Where it is slanderously reported that we teach, let us do evil, that good may come. Paul is scandalized by that very thought, that we would teach that it's okay to do evil so that good may come. But let's take this and apply it practically. That it's okay to lie for the greater good because the end justifies the means. Right, well, who decides? Who decides? If a man or a woman is the judge of when they will or will not tell the truth according as they view the best ends. Where does that take us? Put that person in the witness box. Bring in the Jesuit for his testimony. How confident are you that you are going to get the truth from that person? It appears to be more biblical to recognize that the end is not in our hand, it's in God's hands. And we do not ultimately know what that end is, nor are we to try to play God in making the end what we want or think it to be. We are to trust God, tell the truth, duty is ours, and consequences are his. But that doesn't mean to say that we just have to tell the truth at all times positively. I'm not saying that we have a right to lie, but we can unseasonably speak the truth. What would an example of that be? Well, if somebody came in and said to you, um, are there any Jews hiding in this house? You can be silent. You could turn around and say, why are you in my house? Get out of my house, not answering your question. You could tell them something that is true, but is also a deflective truth. And you haven't violated this commandment. Give you a biblical example. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel has to go up to anoint David, but of course Saul is king, and Samuel anticipates danger. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons." So go and anoint David to be king. And Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. So off he goes with his horn of oil and his heifer. If Saul or his men stop you, what are you here for? Don't mention the horn of oil. He doesn't need to know that. Just tell him, I've got a heifer, I'm coming up to the sacrifice. It's true. We even find Jesus speaking in ways that reveal and conceal. Now, you don't believe a parable is a lie. You know that a parable is true. But Jesus says a parable can be used in two ways. A parable can be used to reveal 
and at the same time it can be used to conceal. An example from church history, Athanasius, famous for defending the Trinity, was being pursued because he was not particularly popular in the empire at that time. And the magistrate sent his men to apprehend Athanasius. And of course, those men did not know what Athanasius looked like, but they lighted upon him. And they came to Athanasius and they said, Where is Athanasius? And Athanasius said, He's not far away from you, and with a little effort, I'm sure you'll find him. He didn't have to say, Oh, I'm Athanasius. Here I am. Take me. So there are ways to speak according to truth without having to offer up truth to people who are going to use it as a wicked, for a wicked end. You get the point. All lying of whatsoever sort, whatever degree, is condemned by the ninth commandment. No lying is permitted. Secondly, the ninth commandment condemns hypocrisy. Hypocrisy involves pretense. The root of the word in Greek means to act or to play a part of something that we're not. The way a man will go on the stage and pretend to be something for a time, but he's not really that person. And we can do this in various situations. Turn to Romans chapter 2, where Paul really probes this quite powerfully. One way that we can be guilty of hypocrisy is by condemning something that we ourselves are guilty of engaged in. Romans chapter 2 and verse 21 through 23. Very searching words. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit, commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Are you a hypocrite? There's a great temptation here concerning our own religious state, even where someone will profess publicly and outwardly what is not true of them in heart. Playing the part of a Christian when we're strangers to the grace of God. Living a double life, one in public and one in private, and we're all guilty of that to some degree. Or as those who Jesus condemned who were religious people who liked to do their public religious duties to be seen of men, but inwardly, what were they? Ravenous wolves, painted sepulchres full of dead men's bones. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Your whole religious life is a lie. And by it you attempt to deceive others, but the one who is most harmed by your hypocrisy is your own soul. Living a life of deception, but the Lord says, don't you be deceived. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And it's true of all lies, ultimately, that the one you lie to first is yourself is yourself. You come home and you lie to your parents and there is a sense in which you're not actually harming your parents. You'll upset them and they will be sorrowful. But there is a sense when, that you're not actually harming them. You're harming yourself. 
And people tell this whole spiel of lies. And the first person that they lie to, to convince themselves of that, is themselves. So destructive. And there's Satan, the father of lies, who knows what his end will be in the lake of fire, and he's enticing you to be like him so that you might join him in his own destruction. And you take the bait. You take the bait. Waking up. The ninth commandment condemns, thirdly, slandering. We considered this when we looked at the sixth commandment. We were talking about gossip and and slander due to their harmful effects upon those that are spoken about so that you can kill a man with words. You can destroy their character. But now gossip and slander are found as violations of the ninth commandment as well because you are destroying the good name of another. It is therefore sinful... And we sin against God and man. But it's also harmful. It's also harmful in a threefold way. It's harmful to the person that you slander. Right? That's the first way. It's harmful to the person you slander another person too. He hears that slander. And it's harmful to ourselves because we're guilty of the slander. Therefore, you are not to raise a slander. You are not to receive a slander. You are not to spread a slander or a false report. You are not even to use the truth when something is true in an unloving or wicked way. It applies to gossip. What is gossip? Well, there aren't hard and fast distinctions, tidy distinctions, but gossip would tend to be spreading that which may be true, but with a false motive. The danger here is that the thing that is true as the gossip spreads generally begins to turn into a false report. It gets all kinds of other things added to it. (coughs) The idle tittle-tattle, things that we say when we get together, the things that you hear in work, oh, did you hear about such and such a person? Oh, would you hear what happened? And then we bring it into church and we've got a very sophisticated way of, of appeasing our conscience with this one. We say, well, I'm, I'm only telling you so that you can pray about it. Be careful of gossip. Then we've slander which tends to be speaking things that are not true, either to someone's face in an evil or malicious way or more often behind someone's back spreading a rumor. I direct your attention to two texts. The first is Psalm 15. Psalm 15. And you'll see a theme in a lot of the verses and psalms that we've considered tonight that that it takes everything to the issue of who dwells with God. Psalm 15, verse 1 through 3, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. It's the same principle that you find in Revelation chapter 21. There are those who are in the holy Jerusalem. There are those who are not in. They're not in God's tabernacle. And slander 
is the mark of one who is cast out. Or turn to the New Testament, Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. You see the word false accusers there? It's the word for devil. Not diabolos. Not devils. Now, now why is it translated as false accusers? Because it's carrying that thought. Satan is a liar from the beginning. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Women, do not use your tongues in a devilish, satanic way to gossip and slander. That, that's what Paul says here. The aged women are to be like. They are to have learned this lesson. Add to this terms like whisperers, backbiters, revilers, whose trade is scandalizing and destroying the people that they speak of. You're here this evening. This might be you. This, this might define you. Unconverted. A gossip, a slanderer, a backbiter, a reviler, a proud liar in all of these areas. And if it's not you completely, there's a part of every single one of us here who is this. Alfred the Great, king of the Saxons, he thought slander to be so heinous that he penalized it by having the tongue cut out. So that the person guilty of slander would not be able to speak again. Do you think that's severe? You think that's barbaric? Oh, we, we wouldn't do things like that today. Well, can I tell you, this is nothing in comparison to the severity with which God is going to deal with the slanderer. He's going to take soul and body of unrepentant slanderers and he's going to cast them into hell where they will wish that they never had a tongue. We sing of this in Psalm 120. Verse 2, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now comes a question. Listen carefully to the question. This might be your tongue. What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thy false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. God is going to fire his arrows and God is going to pour burning coals of fire upon your lying, slanderous tongue if you do not beg him for mercy, repent of your sin and believe the gospel. And if you think you're a Christian and yet this is your tongue, here is the evidence that you're not. And on top of that, you're guilty of hypocrisy. Fourthly, the ninth commandment condemns exaggerating. We somewhat jest about this as the particular problem of the fisherman and he comes home and tells the story of the fish he caught and the fish gradually gets bigger. But it's far more widespread than that. In fact, it's, it's almost a pandemic at times in our hearts. The false assessment of things, the conscious willingness to be liberal in our presentation of what's true and our willingness to distort the truth, to elevate the story up, or to downplay it in another way. 
You know, sometimes you, you listen to people and you're able to discern it. You're able to discern it. Because oftentimes they'll tell the same story again and you'll remember what they said the last time and you think, whoa, that's getting bigger. You'll hear that in your children. You'll hear it in yourself. Exaggeration when you talk about yourselves in this way and you're motivated to embellish the truth because of vainglory. Because the heart is saying, I am wonderful and I want everybody to realize how wonderful that I am. And so I put a gloss on everything, my abilities, my achievements, so that they are better than they are in reality. We talked about this last week. Three times somebody on average lies in, in, in our society within the first 10 minutes of meeting people. How much do you earn? Whoa, it gets up. You get these guys to go to the gym and they're all concerned about how heavy they are. You know, I put on 20 pounds. I'm now 280 pounds. They're maybe only 260 pounds. What, what motivates them to say 280? This willingness to exaggerate and lie because they're not content with the truth. And brethren, you, you might think, well, these things are trivial. They're not. There's a spiritual cancer behind what motivates us to do that kind of thing. When we talk to others, we can be guilty of exaggeration by way of flattery and again, often to deceive. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're really beautiful. Oh, that's the best meal ever. Now, I said we would get to Southern culture. Here's a problem. Very quickly, the superlative can become meaningless. You're just the best. Okay, we have figures of speech. But how many bests can there be? Do you see how this kind of thing creeps in and there's motivations behind it? It can be shallow at best. Often it is deceitful because we're wanting to flatter someone or we're wanting to flatter ourselves in front of someone and we're motivated by pride or there's the danger that we're tempting the other person to pride. But that's one direction. We can do it in another. By consciously understating and misrepresenting the truth in the opposite direction. So now instead of exaggerating our gifts and abilities, we speak too disparagingly of them, particularly to other people. But be careful what the motive behind that is. It's twofold. The first is, it's actually a deceitful attempt to gain praise. You'll find this in your heart. You go and you say, oh, I'm not really very good at this, or I'm, I'm not very, and the person says, oh, no, really, you're wonderful, and you say, oh, really, am I? That's the very thing you were searching for. Or on the other hand, you can genuinely have a false appraisal of yourself and are, are so negative uh, in, in your focus and you see some defects and you say there can't be anything good. You start to despise even the gifts and graces that the Lord has given you. We spoke about this last time. It's a violation of the ninth commandment. There's so much more, brethren, that we could say with regard to this commandment. But it deals with all lying. It's, it's far broader than we think. We've considered false testimony and a false tongue. But I cannot leave this evening without pressing 
the implications of this upon your life because every single one of us here tonight is condemned by this law. If you say I'm not, you're actually in the act of lying. So we tell the truth. Every single one of us is condemned by this law to a greater or lesser degree and it is possible that some of you are liars who are going to the lake of fire. The call, therefore, is repent. The stakes are high. Get the world's attitude of lying out of your mind and heart and see this sin for the iniquitous and abominable thing that God sees it for. And teach your children this. Or you will discipline your children for doing something wrong. Make them understand that to compound it with a lie is even worse. Dissuade them. Dissuade them in your instruction and discipline from lying. When you look into your heart and life and you see this, what do you do? Well, you come to Christ. We said last week, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who has fulfilled this commandment perfectly. And so we bring all of our lying hearts to him, believing that he is willing to freely pardon all of our iniquities. Every single lie that we've told, all of our exaggerations, all of our underestimating of things, all of our hypocrisies, all of our gossips, all of our slanders. He is willing to freely pardon them all. And he is held out to us as a savior who was the brunt of all of these things, the victim of all of these things. He was opposed continually with lies and slanders. He was condemned by false accusers so that they sent men round the city. Anybody want to lie about Jesus in court? And they got volunteers. The problem was that their witness didn't line up together. And eventually they found two who were willing to bear false witness against the Son of God to condemn him to death. Remember what happened to false witnesses in the Old Testament? They, come on, they became liable to the same punishment that their testimony brought upon the other person. Jesus was the target of whisperers and backbiters. He was reviled and, praise God, we read, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again, but he committed himself unto him who judges righteously. And greatest of all, if Jesus was made sin for us, Jesus was made a liar for us by the God of truth. You think about that, the way, the truth, and the life made a liar judicially before God so that we might face the truth of our lies and cast all of our iniquity upon him. By the blessing of God, may our sin of lying destroy our hearts with conviction tonight. But don't let it end there. Come to Christ, and in him you will find salvation. Because when he offers himself and a full and free forgiveness, you can be assured that he does not do what we do. He does not exaggerate. He doesn't exaggerate. When he gives you a promise in his word, he will not break the promise. And everything he holds out to you in the gospel is sincere and all the glory that he sets before us is true. 
and he swears by himself. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6 for your encouragement as a repentant liar. Hebrews chapter 6. Oh, you rob yourself if you will not come to Christ. Look at how the God of truth speaks to us. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17. We're in God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have hope who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. That's what you need to do with all of your lies, you see. You need to go to the God who cannot lie and you need to flee to him as a refuge from all of your lies and take the salvation that he offers to us. The faithful saying, worthy of all of your acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Flee to that refuge. But then I have to leave you with a warning. And for that I ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 28. What an encouragement God gives you this evening in mercy to believe. And if you don't, you will answer for all of your lives. Isaiah 28, verse 15 through 17, Because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we in agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. What, what stupidity is this? Who do you think you are? And under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Do you see, even to these people who are hiding under a refuge of lies, who are telling themselves insane things, imagining that they're safe, God is saying, No, I've laid a stone. He will be a savior to you. But verse 17, judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the heel, listen, shall sweep away the refuge of lies. Are you hearing that tonight? Hebrews 6, fleeing to the refuge who is the God of truth. What's happening here? They haven't done that. And liars are hiding out under a refuge of lies and the storm of, God, storm of God's wrath comes through and it just blows the whole thing apart. And you're carried off into perdition with the whoremongers and the abominable and the fearful and unbelieving. To endure the liar's lake of fire to all eternity. Why will you not face up to your sin? Flee your refuge of lies and find your refuge in Christ, the way, the truth, the life, and all of the promises of God, which are yea and amen. That means true. They are true in him. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we sang of liars earlier today and their death like the adder that no man can charm. And we prayed that you would charm the deaf adder this evening by the power of the truth. We return with that prayer and we add our amens to it again and again. Let it be so, O God, that you would use this sermon to the conversion of sinners.
that you would use it to the sanctification of saints as we see all of our lies and deceitfulness and hypocrisy and exaggerations. Lord, we are a, a spiritual mess and a mass of iniquity, but we thank you that through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we can be delivered and indeed are being delivered from the body of this death. Having heard your word, your people by faith, they run for that refuge and they lay hold of the hope that is set before us and their anchor is cast within the veil to a rock which cannot move. Lord, comfort our hearts that we might even confidently bring our lies to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. We pray, O Lord, that you would sanctify us through your truth. For Christ's sake, amen.